And here we go again. Like I said, that was part one with uh, with Nate Parham, and appreciate him jumping on and talking uh, WNBA and kind of going into that. I know that it's a little bit different take than the Phoenix Suns podcast you guys are used to, but hopefully you appreciate the diversity and complexity of what Bright Side of the Sun is trying to do with uh, talking WNBA. We'll have a lot of uh, D-League coverage as well with the Bakersfield Jam. So we're a full-service basketball site, folks, all over it here in Phoenix. But this is part two of episode 57, and back at it like we usually do with Jim Kokenauer and I uh, riding co-pilots together and talking NBA and talking Phoenix Suns and talking NBA draft. But we're going to go national for a minute with Jim. Um, We talked about it and decided that you can't do a podcast this week and talk basketball without talking a little bit about the eloquent art that the San Antonio Spurs put together for five games and taking down their fifth NBA championship, Greg Popovich, Tim Duncan. Uh, Congratulations to them first and foremost. But Jim, how are you doing here today? And then let's go ahead and kick things off by talking about amazing basketball. Yeah, it's always a good day to talk about amazing basketball. And the Spurs really put on a clinic. I wasn't surprised. There was a lot of conversation during the finals, uh, through the media, during the broadcast, about how it was shocking the way uh, Miami was getting just completely routed by the Spurs. But I I wasn't really that surprised because I, I didn't think that Miami was maybe more than the the fourth or fifth best team in the Western Conference anyway if they were slated over there instead. So I wasn't really surprised at all by the outcome. I think that Oklahoma City or the Clippers, you know, maybe even a couple other teams would have been uh, better than or equal to the match for them. But the Spurs really gave us a little bit of a different blueprint in terms of lots of championship teams where they needed one of those really premier stars, one of the top one or two players in the league, they kind of broke from the mold of needing a Magic or a Bird or a Jordan or an Elijah one. And even though they still have Duncan on that team, he's obviously not that top one or two player anymore like he was previously. They had a, a lot more depth and a lot of players that they've kind of gotten from off the radar. And great coaching, obviously, with Popovich you know, moving into the ranks if he wasn't already there, uh, more in maybe at least a popular consensus because a lot of the people in the know had him there. as one of you know, a few elite coaches of all time. I was actually looking it up today. I hadn't realized before. But think about this, Chris. Patty Mills on the Spurs was 20th, top 20 in the league in win shares per 48 uh, during the regular season. He averaged over 18 points per 36 and shot over 40% from three-point range. And he did that this year, but he's also done it for his career. And I mean, look where the Spurs found a guy like this. It's it's amazing how they find people in general. I mean, we've always given them credit for being good at second-round picks and international pickups and things like that. But, you know, kind of shrewdly and wisely moving from the George Hill to Kawhi Leonard, which... As much as George Hill has been valuable to Indiana and the trade has been, you know, pretty even for the most part, I, I don't think that Indiana is upset that they have George Hill. Um, but, I mean, Kawhi Leonard's an NBA Finals MVP. He's the reason why LeBron James was frustrated and wasn't able to do the things that LeBron could do, at least consistently throughout the games. And, uh, you know, they also go out there and they get Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker uh, in the second round. And Tim Duncan was a number one overall pick a million years ago back in 1998. So, 
this is it's an interesting way to put together a team they kept their core three and then they found other guys to go around them and you you make a good point in saying that they didn't necessarily have one of the top five players in the nba like the old model used to be but i I throw this at you without any prep by the way i I apologize jim if i'm throwing this at you on the fly you can um uh, verbally slap me away with this question but I think Tony Parker, he's getting a lot more national recognition and credit than, than he used to over the years, but is is Tony Parker more or less turning into the current version of Dennis Johnson as being arguably, debatably, one of the probably most underrated players in the history of the game? I think with that team, it, to a certain extent, some of the, the roles are diminished because the the way Popovich coaches, the system they run, the kinds of players he want in there, there's no room for ego. So it's very possible that Parker could have put up better numbers in on a different team in a different situation. He definitely has great leadership skills and he's a great floor general. So I don't, I don't put him in the same class as one of the great point guards of all time. I don't think he's up in the you know the same area that maybe say Chris Paul, Steve Nash, some of these guys are. But he was second team All NBA this year, and I think that was very deserving. I, I think that he is one of the the best point guards in the NBA still. Yeah, I've I've had him for since Darren Williams took his decline and since Steve Nash kind of took his decline, I've always looked at Tony Parker as the second best point guard in the NBA from a point guard perspective. I mean, obviously we can talk about the Michael Carter Williams and the Russell Westbrooks and the athletes that play the position that are amazing, but I don't know, is it the the Chris Paul and then it goes Tony Parker for me when you're looking at point guards, but so you you were not shocked that the Spurs dismantled the Miami Heat. Are you of that notion and if you are, we're we're about to fight a little bit. Are you of that notion that the Miami Heat are a bunch of individuals band together that win games and they're mercenaries winning championships and the Spurs are a great team and they did it the right way? Are, are you one of those guys that fall into that trap of that narrative? I just think that Miami had the best player in the series and then San Antonio had probably the next five, six, seven best players after that. Even uh, with Dwayne Wade on Miami, he just wasn't really one of the best players in the series at all. So LeBron was on an island. Um, I don't necessarily know that I'd fall into line with saying this is the right way to do it, this is the wrong way to do it. I think for Phoenix Suns fans, it should be a little bit refreshing, though, from the angle that it gives you a, a different approach, a blueprint that... If you focus on finding players from different areas, that scouting into the late first and second rounds can be helpful. Uh, coaching, uh, having a, a really solid foundation in your front office, like the Spurs have had, probably the best in the NBA, that, that those are things that are important. And those are the things that the Suns can work on, even if they're not the sexiest location in terms of attracting LeBron James. Yeah, and well, my point is, is just I, it's convenient for fans to go, and even media members alike to say, because the Spurs did what they did to Miami, that Miami's a bunch of individuals, and then forgetting the fact that 
Yeah, there were a bunch of individuals in 2010, but they went to the NBA Finals as, a, as being a bunch of individuals. And then they were a, in my opinion, and I, I, it's my opinion, you guys can disagree, that's fine. They were a great team. Like, let's stop diminishing things just because we don't like LeBron James or we don't like Eric Spolstra or we don't like Dwayne Wade. Look, this is they put together a very good team. Um, like this year, as you mentioned before, it, it may not have been the best team or the second best team in the NBA overall throughout the entire season in the playoffs. There might have been some teams that have played consistently better but you know the year that they beat Oklahoma City that was a great team the year that they went out there and they beat San Antonio a great team and this year there was the same level of being a great team just some of their pieces were a little bit older some of their pieces weren't as effective Dwayne Wade is clearly gone from being a sidekick to maybe being you know just a member of the team not really being that great player that has that transcendent impact and it's more of you know LeBron and Chris Bosh and then a bunch of old guys kind of around them but I, I still don't like it when folks say it's it's a bunch of individuals. It, it was a good team, and San Antonio just picked them apart, completely threw them out of their rhythm. And yeah, they looked like individuals for a while there because San Antonio did such a great job of taking them out of anything they wanted to do and then completely take, picking them apart on the offensive end, scoring at will on them. Um, but let, let's jump off the national scale. You mentioned the Suns now can look at a blueprint of another way to do things. A part of it is the draft. The, the San Antonio Spurs, when you look back at their draft history, they do a great job of maximizing value of their picks that they have. Um, everyone's not a, a hit. Everyone's not an all-star, but they maximize the value of every pick that they have. The Suns have three picks here in the first round, one in the second round. So maximizing the value of these guys might be the way to continue building You know, next year as well with some picks the following year. They've done a good job of kind of like logging together a bunch of picks every single year when you look at that gym and you see the fact that they have these three picks is this the way that they can kind of start that trend towards being that team that can maybe build each year through the draft and go and find players in different areas yeah i mean i guess if you're wanting to take that more vertiginous route then they have an opportunity this year i i, I still don't think that they want to just keep those three picks, 14, 18, 27, and Stan Patton draft three players, even if they stash one with one of the picks. They, they want to move. Uh, Ryan McDonough said he wants to move. So, uh, but I think that, yeah, that there's a, a good chance that they can kind of start off in that route. And unfortunately, a lot of the players that, that I like for them are kind of projected towards the top or maybe borderline on their first pick, but I think that the the scouting department and especially with McDonough heading that, I, I think they have a chance that they can maybe find one of those players with a later pick, just like Archie Goodwin, who's showing so much potential. And you know, potential doesn't mean anything. You got to actually project that forward and, and to become that player. But I, I think that they have a, a chance that that's definitely trending in a good direction for the team. So when you look at it, the Suns have the three first-round picks, and let's do a, a quick little mock draft roundup update of everything that went down. So today is Thursday. Joel Embiid went down with uh, with another injury, and so he's free-falling down mock draft board. So everybody updated today. So when we look at it, the number 14 overall pick, no consensus. It's James Young from ESPN. It's Gary Harris from Draft Express. Kyle Anderson from Draft.net, 
And then I'm going to go ahead and be self-promoting and, and throw my site on there as well, NBA Draft Insider, and I have them drafting Adrian Payne. So with the 14th pick, there's a lot of fluidity, obviously, in that general range of the middle of the lottery there. When you hear those names, James Young, Gary Harris, Kyle Anderson, Adrian Payne, which of those ones are ones that you kind of like and you can see being a good fit for the Phoenix Suns in your opinion? You know, first of all, let me hear your thoughts, what you think about Joel Embiid with uh, the news today and where that puts him in the mix. Well, I mean, we've seen him fall as low as, I think, 10 on some mock drafts that are worth looking at. But for the most part, most people have him falling into that 3-6 to six range. And I think that that's realistic. I mean, if you have, if you're, here's the thing. If you're the Cleveland Cavaliers, you're David Griffin. You just inherited a big mess from Chris Grant. He drafted Anthony Bennett last year. He drafted Tristan Thompson and Deion Waiters probably before their projections and put together a pretty poor roster geometry-wise when it comes to defense and everything clicking and meshing. So this is a pick right here where you can't afford necessarily to mess up. It's his first draft he's running. He's not going to get fired for not doing what you know the owner wants with the first draft pick that he ever has, but it's another number one. You missed on your last one. You missed on your previous two uh, number four picks as well. You got to find a way to nail this one. And with Joel Embiid's red flags, I, I just I don't see how they could take him because they want to win now in some respect. So, you know, drafting a Jabari Parker gives them you know the same physical body as Anthony Bennett, but he does different things. So it kind of you know cancels out Anthony Bennett, and he's irrelevant on the roster. Drafting Andrew Wiggins gives them a, a Kawhi Leonard-esque type player who could have that impact in a couple of years defensively. And then they're also looking at Dante Exum or potentially moving down with a trade. So I think that the, what the Cavaliers do at the top, it's going to trickle down at least for the first six to eight picks. But I, I don't see there's a big eight in this draft. I don't really see anything changing outside of those big eight. I think you're going to see Embiid, Wiggins, Parker, Exum, Smart, Randall, Vonley, and Gordon, those are going to be your first eight picks in whatever order it ends up being. And then after that is where the fluidity begins and the Suns have, you know, one of probably 10 different players that could go in the range of 9 to 14 that'll be on their board that they'll be looking at and monitoring. But I, I think the Joel Embiid news only changes things at the very top. It doesn't really shake too much down after when you get to the Suns area. Okay, so with the concerns there, you don't see the Cavs wedding themselves and taking Doug McDermott number one overall, nothing like that? Uh, Chris Grant will be working for CBS doing draft analysis, so I do not think that that'll be a pick that they'll make, no. Yeah, I, I was on the radio last year when the top five fell apart with the Anthony Bennett thing and felt kind of ashamed, but then when everybody else got it completely wrong, like I did too, kind of laughed it off instead. Um, with the Suns at 14, I think in terms of players that potentially would be available, my order, and I think at least one of these guys would definitely be there, would be Stauskas, Peyton, Harris, and Levine. I think that'd be my four, and I think for sure one of those guys is there. I think so as well. And you, with, when you're Ryan McDonough, you might even have two or three of those guys. Like let's, let's pretend you're Ryan McDonough telling me you're your top four. You might even have two or three or all four of those guys at that point. I mean, Stauskas, it, it, there's vibes that he's probably going to go between eight and ten. Those teams like him at that range. Um, but, you know, he, he could be there. But he, if he's the only one off the board and you're looking at at least three of the four guys that you really like, 
if you're drafting near the Phoenix Suns and you have those three guys left, let's pretend Stauskas is off the board. How do you go with that? How do you choose your your guy, and why do you choose him? Best player available. I think that even past the draft, that the roster is something that can completely evolve past that point. And even with the backlist the way it is, with Dragic and Bledsoe, and even say that they're really committed to that, which... I guess I, I, don't, I don't think, I mean, there's no LeBron James on this team. So I, I still think those are movable parts. And you're looking for time for Archie Goodwin, potentially. But if you can bring in another guy, like uh, Peyton, to come in and challenge for that playing time right away, then I, I don't see a problem with that. I, I still think the Suns are in a position right now where they're good at drafting at any position, best player available. Yeah, and and a couple of things with the Suns is that they can improve offensively on the wing, they can improve with their backup point guard, and they can improve with their productivity from their centers. Because, I mean, as great as Miles Plumlee was for two games with those outside-the-wall numbers that he had, he was pretty pedestrian. He was, he was an average NBA starting center, maybe a little bit below average for the remainder of the season. Um, but look, you draft Peyton, you draft Marcus Smart, even if he falls there, you draft a point guard in that spot, you're basically just upgrading from Ish Smith, and you're giving yourself insurance in case you end up moving Bledsoe or Dragic, who are you know two of your three best assets on the entire organization to make a trade. So if you end up moving or losing one of those guys... And you like this two-point guard system, you know, having Peyton, you know, be groomed, or having a guy like Marcus Smart being groomed on the bench as your Ish Smith improvement upgrade, whatever you want to call it, that's not a bad idea. And that's that's an idea that Amin El Hassan talked about on the podcast that we had here about a month or so ago. About do you have to be making this pick, projecting what might be going on three, four, or five years down the road, not just next year, and trying to go from forty-eight wins to fifty wins and make the playoffs, basically. Um, Switch gears over to number 18. So going in that same order, ESPN, Draft Express, Draft.net, and uh, NBA Draft Insider, TJ Warren, Adrian Payne again, Clay Anthony Early, TJ Warren. Those are the three guys, or four different uh, picks there, three different guys at the number 18 pick. Do you like any of those guys? Do you think any of those guys fit, especially after you just drafted Alfred, Alfred Payton with your number 14 pick? Yeah, I, I've seen uh, a bunch of stuff on, on those guys, and actually, I, I've heard enough love on Adrian Payne that I guess at, at that spot that I wouldn't be diametrically opposed to taking him there. I, I'm not necessarily personally in love with him, but once again, even at 14, I had four guys I kind of like there, so... Potentially one of those guys can fall, drop to that position, maybe, and I, I take one of them instead. Um, well, you just mentioned uh, a little bit ago, too, about Marcus Smart possibly falling. If he does start to get close to the Suns' pick, I wouldn't be opposed to the Suns trying to move up to get him either. I think that he actually has the chance of being the best guard period in the draft and it seems like uh, Ryan McDonough type of player 
Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And and I like how, you know, Adrian Payne fits on this roster theoretically when you go Channing Fry might be out after next year, you know, if he opts in this summer. And Markeith Morris, it clearly seems like he has a glass ceiling, you know, maybe bring in another power forward that has the ability to shoot, play in this system a little bit better defensively overall than those two guys. But, you know, it makes sense on paper. Like, theoretically, Adrian Payne on the Phoenix Suns, it's a win-win for everybody. But obviously, you know, you got to get him on the court and see what happens. He's got his lung issue. He's had, you know, it, you know, he's been spotty defensively in terms of basketball IQ and knowing where to go in rotation. So, you know, he's got his limitations as well, which is why he was a four-year guy and why he's being talked about in like that 14 to 18 range. I like TJ Warren in that spot. You know, I have him there on my mock draft and ESPN has him there on theirs. He's a guy that may not shoot the three amazingly, but a guy that actually can get the ball in the hole. He's a scorer. He gets a lot of things done in the mid-range, in the paint, gets to the free throw line. Just a dynamic overall scorer that just has a nose for the ball and a nose to score. And he proved that he's a pretty quality ball handler, passer, and defender last year, kind of losing a lot of weight, improving his athleticism and conditioning. I don't know how much you saw of TJ Warren, but upgrading on the wing is something that I'm a huge fan of with this team. What are are your thoughts on maybe adding a TJ Warren or someone that upgrades that? wing position yep either way a thing that I had brought up to you before is that there's no guarantee absolutely and and almost uh, less than average chance that even in this deep draft that somebody the Suns are drafting there whether it is Warren or Payne is going to provide an, an immediate impact so even if somebody like Payne makes sense based on what he brings to the team positionally, there's there's really not any kind of promise that he's going to be able to be an effective rotational player at the NBA level in his first season. It's just, it's really, it, it would go against the trend. The, the odds are that he's not with, with either way. So if... You get a guy like T.J. Warren, if there's, you know, any kind of health concern with a guy like Payne, uh, that would kind of scare me off right off the bat. So, really, really it, just, it just comes down to whatever player you think might help you two or three years, I think. I don't, I don't think drafting off of immediate impact it makes a, a whole lot of sense at that position. Yeah, and, and I don't think you draft off of immediate impact unless you're in that last 10 picks, which we'll get to the Phoenix Suns uh, roundup here, the 27th pick. But unless you're a playoff team that is drafting in the back third and you're just adding, you know, like we see it all the time, adding seniors or adding um, the older international prospects that can come over and make an immediate impact. I mean, those are the kind of guys like Miles Plumley we saw with Indiana and, and Solomon Hill and other players, Draymond Green. We see it all the time where teams will go and get a senior, go get a guy that might make that immediate impact. But overall, I mean, you're drafting a prospect to develop to eventually be a key cog on your team. So, I mean, if you're drafting for immediate impact, it's not necessarily going to happen. Um, with the 27th pick, we have two draft and stashes and then two you know, players that you guys might be very familiar with. Clint Capella, the Swiss-slash-French uh, athletic big man. Jeremy Grant, uh, another really athletic guy who's a little undersized for the four. Jordan Adams from the Pac-12 with UCLA that you guys are probably all very familiar with, uh, led the Pac-12 in steals last year. And then Jusef Nurkic, the uh, Bosnian big man who is a massive, massive load 
uh, struggles dealing with athleticism and being guarded by guys that are athletic and rangy, but just a massive 6'11", 280-pound center that you know is pretty skilled offensively in there. When you look at 18 and 27, so 14, unless we're moving up, is probably somewhere where we're drafting, but 18 and 27, that immediate impact conversation that we're just having, packaging them, drafting stash, trading them, doing something with them, are, are you opposed to drafting three players, or you want to see some way, shape, or form only one, maybe two rookies coming onto this team? I'd rather have less but I guess if you look at it, you have Barbosa, Christmas, Randolph coming off. So you have the spots, and if you have players you like, then you kind of add them in, and then all of a sudden you have a roster that's completely full of what you look at as assets, people that you, you know, like to have, think have futures moving forward. If they were going to take somebody with that pick that wasn't a draft in stash. And I think somebody like Capella would be great if he falls there, but maybe somebody like Mitch McGarry would be good at that 27 pick. Somebody that could kind of compete with Miles Plumley and maybe earn some of those center minutes and even just give him another good body in there to practice with, Gary Plumley and Len, so that they could have, you know, try to structure like a good center unit, a front line there. And you bring up a huge point, which is another part of the back third of the first round is usually seniors and kind of more developed, ready to go players. Is having someone you can rely on in practice. Having you know a Mitch McGarry who's a six ten, two hundred and fifty pound. He's a year older than everybody because he went to uh, prep school, so he's technically more of like that junior senior with his age a guy that you know is going to be able to go into practice and handle the physicality and delve it out himself and be able to be a quality practice player. Now, does the affiliation with the Bakersfield Jam change your opinion as a fan-slash-media writer person? Does that change your opinion at all on how you handle these three picks? So if a, a trade doesn't blow you away, drafting three guys and then theoretically leaving two of them or all three of them in Bakersfield for 60-80% to 80% of the season is not something that's far-fetched anymore. It's something that you can actually do, and you now kind of have a farm system where you can pipe these guys through. Yeah, I think actually it does change the landscape there because now you have a completely different dynamic to where you kind of control that team and you can be completely invested in nurturing them along, fostering their growth before maybe you're sending somebody down and then they're at the mercy of the team to a certain extent. You don't know what kind of deal is actually in there. But now, that's that's basically your minor league team and you're going to treat those players exactly how you want to to help further their careers and advance them back to the next level, back to your NBA level team. Yeah, and, and I think that that's huge for teams like the Suns where you have that system set up in place. So, Going back to the Alfred Payton point guard at number 14 conversation, yeah, it's kind of silly. You have Goran Dragic and you have Eric Bledsoe, but technically one is your shooting guard and one is your point guard, and then one of them leaves the floor and somebody comes off the bench and plays. So, you know, if an Alfred Payton is a guy you draft and then you throw him in the D-League for, you know, substantial parts of the year to let him develop and learn how to run this system, and then all of a sudden you bring him up for the second half of the year and he's able to make an impact on the game. So, you know, it's your coach, it's your staff, it's your everything down there. 
um, now over with Bakersfield. So it's it's a huge thing that they have with that, and and maybe drafting three players, and they have the fiftieth pick as well. So it's not outside of the realm of possibility that they just draft someone they like at fifty, and they let him live in Bakersfield as well. Yes, the only thing I forget exactly how it works with the the roster spots. So you still have to be careful with that in terms of switching them back and forth. So it, it does have a little bit of an influence there, but at the same time, you don't have to worry about burying people on the bench that aren't going to get any playing time. Exactly, and and a guy that you like, Zach Levine, is going to be somebody that's going to wear a, an NBA D-League jersey probably more in his first two years than anybody drafted in the first round this year of this draft. Not not as a slight on him. He's super athletic, and he's a blank canvas to paint on and, and develop, but he's a kid that is just clearly physically not going to be ready for the NBA game. So Bakersfield, I, I, I forget what their jerseys look like. It might look good on Zach Levine, so I know that you like him, and I know he's super athletic, and... Uh, Ryan McDonough likes athletes, so we might get to see Bakersfield Jam games might be appointment only for Jim uh, when we get Zach Levine over there wearing that jersey all season. Yeah, well, he he definitely tested out on the YouTube videos, even if he's not going to win the draft combine the rest of the way. So, yeah, Zach Levine did pretty good there. Yeah, that's what it's all about, though. It's about winning the YouTube mixtape video award uh, each year. That's what gets you drafted. Um, I don't. I don't know. We we would go back to Anthony Bennett earlier. I don't know what got him drafted number one overall. Maybe it was a charming smile and a uh, whatever the case may be. So the Phoenix Sun. So that's the mock draft roundup. So when you look at it, it's you know four different players drafted at twenty seven, four different players drafted at fourteen, and then three different players drafted at eighteen. So not really a major consensus. And there's always a ton of fluidity going on once you get past that first tier, second tier of the draft, and the second tier ends at number eight, like we talked about. So speaking of number eight, moving up in the draft, everyone talks about it like it's some easy thing. Oh, just package this and that and throw it at a team and they're going to give you their pick and it's good. Just move up in the draft. But when it comes to moving up in the draft, Jim, what what if any pros do the Suns have of moving up? First scenario is moving up to between nine and 13. Second scenario, moving up into the top eight. What, what are the benefits, though, of moving up between nine and 13, in your opinion? You know, either way, 9 to 13 or into the top 8, because I don't think they could get high enough to get somebody like Vanla that I value a little bit higher. But depending on who's available, an 8 actually might be a line of demarcation there. But Gordon and Smart are players that I really like. And if the Suns aren't in the running for Kevin Love, then I wouldn't mind them exhausting a couple of their assets to try to get one of those two players. So historically, like let's just look at last year's draft where 14 and 21, which were Shabazz, Muhammad, and uh, Gorgie Jang, turned into Trey Burke, um, and and you know moving up and swapping picks, and you know the the Philadelphia 76ers made their trade with New Orleans, and it was Drew Holiday to be able to move up to the number six pick. Drew Holiday is a comparable asset to a Goran Dragic. I think most people would agree, not saying that Drew Holiday is better, but he's a comparable asset in terms of, you know, his player value and what he does and his age and all that fun stuff. So is there value in moving a Goran or an Eric Bledsoe or something similar of that ilk to get into the top eight? Or is that something that you would completely say no to and shy away from? 
Yeah, I, I don't think I'd move either of them because I, I don't think either of them can get you to the very top. If they could get you, and, and even Ray McDonough, he's acknowledged that. If if you could get right into that top, you know, three, four picks, and maybe a guy that you actually like and value that high, like you have a Wiggins available, then at, at that point, yeah, then Gordon or Eric would be expendable. But I, I don't think you can. And at that point, some of the guys I ranked just a little bit below that, I don't think it's worth doing that. So I'd be kind of the opinion that pretty much anything else would be on the table besides those two guys if, like I said, if if they're not in the running for love, then I'd really like for them to be in the running to move up in the draft and, and get somebody a little bit better that way. And th- then I'd put pretty much everything else in play. Going back to your scenario of liking Marcus Smart and liking Noah Vonley, those are two guys that obviously this draft has so much fluidity now because of the Joel Embiid situation, but Noah Vonley and Marcus Smart are guys that could very easily go as high as number three and four, respectively, or four and five. These are guys that are that very realistically are going to be gone by the top five, um, and worst case scenario, by the top eight. I, I don't see Marcus Smart falling past the Lakers or the Kings with their need of a guy that they can kind of lean on and, and play the point guard position. Um, and then with Noah Vonley, you know, just him falling into that 7-8 range will probably be best available player at that point. But both those guys realistically could be gone by five. So just my rationale with moving up is unless you're moving up into the top eight and you're strategically targeting one of these top eight guys that you really, really love, you know, let's say the Lakers are just completely throw their hands in the air and they're like, you know, what, we're not going to get what we want. So, hey, Phoenix, yeah, you want to trade us, you know, Goran or Eric or our pick back to us or whatever the case may be and then give us 14. We'll let you move up. Th- those are the situations where I can see maybe moving up in the draft. But if you're moving up and you're losing assets to go up to nine, for example, and you're going from 14 and getting Gary Harris, for example, versus going nine and getting Nick Stauskas, there's not a lot that separates those guys, if that makes sense. I think that that's when you're getting into that third tier of players that are all pretty similar and comparable in overall NBA value, in my opinion. And I just I don't see the value in moving up, giving up an extra asset to get a guy that's going to be very comparable to what you're getting at 14 versus what you would get at like 9, 10, 11, 12, or 13. A lot of those guys are going to have very similar NBA careers, unless, you know, maybe Joel Embiid decides to free fall and he is there available at 10 and you can really persuade Philly to, you know, give up a give up that pick for maybe an asset or two that's not as valuable and you know you can go and get a guy that free fell but I don't think that any of those guys that are in my top eight are going to be guys that fall past number eight yeah I kind of agree with that and I think, I think the way most of the NBA Warriors work is that they've kind of got several players on different tiers and so they're going to rank them out as you know one star two star three star four star or whatever and I kind of agree with your assessment that once you get down past a certain player, then especially in this draft, that there's quite a few players in, say, that fourth tier where the Suns would be picking at 14 that would still be you know available from 10 to 16. Yeah, and that's what I mean. We see it with the mock draft roundup that we did. James Young, Gary Harris, uh, Kyle Anderson, Doug McDermott's been there, Adrian Payne, a lot of different guys getting thrown at underneath the sun's name of players that could be there, should be there, might be there. And I, you know, this draft, it used to have a lot of 
uh, very good structure and a lot of concreteness to the top eight where you can go, you know, move a piece here or there. But these are going to be the top eight in this order, maybe give or take one guy swapping a spot with another. But the top eight now even has some cracks in it and it's a little bit shaky. And then once you get past the top eight, then that's when the fluidity begins and it, it really starts to become any of these guys in this tier or any of these guys in that tier. And it's really hard to kind of nail down who you think is going to go to a specific team, especially when you have like Philly and Orlando who have two picks in the lottery that very easily could use those to move up or they can use those picks to move into getting a veteran. I mean, there's a lot of different things that can go on so much fluidity in that sun's range where it's it's in my opinion not worth it to move up to that nine to thirteen range and give up an extra asset. But if you can get into the top eight, I think any of those eight guys are worth moving up for and giving up an extra asset. I think the the good thing with the Thunder position and now with the transmogrification they've went through, I, I really trust the the front office so. It seems unlikely that there will be a scenario that will unfold to where draft night, after everything unfurls, I'm going to be left bewildered or shaking my head. So you're not going to have the Anthony Bennett, uh, Kendall Marshall-type moment where you're just sitting back and you're a little bit puzzled at what's going on? No, well, the Anthony Bennett one was completely discomforting, but the Kendall Marshall one was scary because I ticked at the Sun. We did a, a preview on that on Brightside, and I I ticked that the Suns would take him and that I didn't want him, and so that was like a perfect example of the just team gone awry because I was like, well, this isn't who they should pick, but they're stupid, so they're going to pick them. <laughs> <laughs> on a side note, on my draft website with my last mock draft that I put up on there, actually, I've actually nailed the Suns picks in 2012 and 2013, was it? Or, yeah, the Kendall Marshall and the Alex Len slash Archie Goodwin nailed all three of those picks in the, in the last two years. So I, I'm hoping, wondering if I'm going to be able to nail these. But then again, they're probably not going to leave with uh, 14, 18, and 27. Um, last question about the picks and moving up and fl- moving around and fake scenarios that we have no control over and that probably won't happen. Are you comfortable in a situation where the Suns end with two late lottery picks somehow combining 18 and 27 or other assets to move up to like, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, and also having that 14th pick. Would that be a scenario that you'd be comfortable with, with leaving with two late lottery picks versus, you know, packaging up the house and selling the farm and trying to move up to number eight? Yeah, because the, the guys that I was targeting and, and hoping that at least one or two would be available with uh, the 14. Uh, I think you can get two of those guys if you move up and, you know, say you're at 12 and 14, 13, 14, maybe even 14, 15, something like that. So I I think that 18 probably moves those guys off the board that that I really like. So I think that gives them a chance to take two young players instead of three. That gives them a little bit more mobility with the rest of the roster moving forward so uh, I wouldn't I would have no problem with them doing that so I think that that could be an interesting scenario especially when you consider like Philadelphia and, and Orlando as I mentioned with two picks there at 10 and 12 respectively 
and then you have Minnesota at 13 that probably doesn't care as much about that pick when they're so focused on the Kevin Love move and kind of readjusting themselves for life without Kevin Love. So it's it's an interesting scenario where you might have, you know, three or four teams that are very willing to move that pick. And, you know, talking about Sacramento, Sacramento, I think if you dangled either Bledsoe or Dragic for that number eight pick, but you also made them give you back Isaiah Thomas because you got to get something back also. But if they if you had them dangle one of these two point guards, I guarantee that they would jump up and down and wag their tail and, and Ryan McDonough might be able to take advantage of them a little bit. But I think moving up to number eight is realistic. I think that that's something that they might be able to do. And Orlando's been you know, vocally in search of a point guard and getting an Eric Bledsoe or a Goran Dragic, I don't know if they would give up number four. Like if, if you're in Orlando's chair and you're bargaining with me, Ryan McDonough, and I said, hey, I got Goran Dragic, I got the number 14 overall pick, I got a future first that I, I'm willing to give you as well. And let's see about, you know, bargaining and, and making moves with the rest of the pieces. Let's make this trade work. I'd like to move up to number four. How quickly do you hang up the phone with me or do you actually negotiate? <laughs> well, I think, first of all, it's, it's the summer of love. And that predicates uh, the rest of the decisions. And I think the Suns are in the running. So that's really going to affect the rest of their moves until they know how that is going to play out. So that was a pretty short filibuster. It was pretty weak. Um, you completely sidestepped the question there. So Rob Hennigan, uh, the hats off to you. Good job. You, you, you're able to get me sidetracked and make me forget about what we were talking about. And you completely talked me off of my trade. Uh, do you really feel though, that the Suns are still actually in contention for Kevin Love with all the clay Thompson rumors and the golden state swap and what they're talking about over there? Let's, let's kind of end the conversation and the podcast on Kevin Love. Cause that's what everybody wants to hear about. Do you feel legitimately that the Suns are actually still in this um, conversation in this race? You're welcome, tip of the hat. I, I to you appreciate my tergiversation, uh, kind of evading your your question there with that. Um, I only bring it up because I know it's going to miss you. <laughs> so yeah, the Kevin Love thing, I, I I really do. I think that I think the Suns are one of the last teams in the running there, and I think they are very focused on that trade and seeing if they can make make it work. I don't know. I just... Clay Thompson or one of the other, Eric Bledsoe, Goran Dragic, which one is the better long-term asset in the eyes of a team like Minnesota? Clay Thompson, borderline all-star, ceiling, I think. Um, I don't know. It just depends on the Suns, I think. With enough drastics, 14, 18, 27, Lakers top protecting five, give many back their pick. You could even give them another future first round pick. So you give them like six first round draft picks. Uh, where does the bidding stop? Do you want one of Alex Lynn or Archie Goodwin? Do you like these other players that we can give you? The Suns can really offer quite a bit depending on how much they want to extend themselves. Uh, at some point, I think for the Suns, it becomes a point of that the asking price is too rich. Okay, so this question just popped in my head. Good or a bad thing that Clay Thompson's name leaked out as the 
as the centerpiece of this trade because now that Clay Thompson's name leaks out, all of a sudden numbers and metrics and you know future projections on All Star and how good players are going to be, the centerpiece now has a name and a face where other teams can compete with that and say we have something better. Is it is that a good or a bad thing that Clay Thompson's name leaked out? Bad thing for the Suns that it was actually mentioned there because there's something solid there. So now the Suns are looking at, instead of like the compilation that I described, maybe trying to get that one asset that's better than that, because lots of times you're looking at that one better asset. So, you know, who knows what the Suns can do there. Well, there's that. There's there's the, the ending of love, the ending with love, the ending about love, wh- whatever you guys want to call it. We talked about Kevin Love for you guys. And like Jim said, it normally myths me, and I don't understand all the love for Kevin Love. I don't get it. I don't see him as a star or even a top 10 or 15 player. But the world seems to think that he's the best thing since sliced bread, and he's going to win a championship going somewhere because he's the, the new flavor of the month of the crybaby superstars that want to get out of their town and out of their contract and out of their situation because they don't like it anymore. Um, but, you know, that's today's NBA. We see that uh, every single year or every other year. But that that's a wrap. That's the episode. That's a two-parter. WNBA with part one, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, share and tell a friend. Part two, covering and scoping everything going on with the Phoenix Suns right now. Jim, any parting words, any wise uh, little pieces of advice and nuggets for the Brightside community? I still love you, Chris. Still love all our listeners. And love that the draft is coming up and can't wait for it to be here and actually over to a certain extent so the anticipation leaves. It's all about love. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Phoenix Suns podcast here on Bright Side of the Sun. Again, check it out on TuneIn. Check it out on the website. And as soon as iTunes decides to care, like, or hey, maybe even love us, we'll be be on iTunes as well. Have a good day.